0: Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he put himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be on to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that, that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Steve. Um, Why don't I pray for us again before we get going in Luke chapter 10, uh, because we've got a lot to get through this morning, and we need God's help in understanding what he's saying to us. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. And we pray now that uh, by the power of your spirit, that as we look at these verses, we would see incredible things about your son, Jesus. And we pray that 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 which we see of him uh, would delight us and transform us uh, in such a way that we go from here to make you known uh, and to boldly proclaim your kingdom, And we pray these things for your glory. Amen. Um, If you're visiting with us this morning, what we've been doing for the last period of time is uh, studying uh, the book of Luke together, um, Luke's account of of the life uh, and uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, And what we've been seeing in Luke's gospel is that Jesus Christ is the king who has been sent by God to save this world. He has come on a rescue mission to fix broken lives and to fix our broken world. And what we've seen, especially in these last few weeks, is that Jesus calls people to follow him. When he transforms people's lives, he calls them to join him on mission, on this global mission, a mission uh, to see him restore broken lives and to see him restore this broken world. And I wonder how you feel about Jesus' call to join him on mission. Maybe if you're a Christian this morning, that call to to mission, to make Jesus Christ known, to see him restore broken lives in this broken world, it's a mission that excites you. It's one that, that gives you real purpose and meaning in life. Maybe it might overwhelm you. A global rescue mission. For me, I'm sent by Jesus to join him. Where do I even start? Maybe it burdens you a bit. You want to do something. You really have a desire to make Jesus known, to see his kingdom come, but, but you don't know where to start. Not sure what to do. You, you kind of get busy doing stuff, but you're not really sure if you're being missional at all. You ever feel like any of those things? I know I do. Maybe all of them at different times. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is talking to a group of followers and he's briefing them for the mission that lies ahead. And I find it really helpful to listen to his mission briefing. It's given me real clarity on what it looks like to follow Jesus on mission now. And what we need to know about this section is that it's one of these passages in the Bible that we have to read as Christians now as more descriptive rather than prescriptive. What I mean by that is uh, we don't read all the details that we see here and then kind of copy and paste them to us and our situation now, following him. Um, There are principles here that definitely apply to our lives on mission now, but clearly Jesus is briefing these people for a very particular mission at a very specific time in redemptive history. So some of the details we read, like like those in verse 4, uh, about carrying no money bag, no knapsack. Um, those are, are not details that are kind of universal. Uh, it's not that we need to go out on mission, not carrying a, a rucksack or extra money with us on the way. Um, everything missional that we try to do doesn't have to be done in pairs like we see here. You can do that if you want, um, but it's not, I, I think, what, what Luke is wanting us to take away from this. And so the question we have to ask is, what can we learn from Jesus' instructions to them? which help give us clarity now about the mission he calls us to. There is loads in this passage, um, and we're not going to have time to pick through it all, but I've got four truths which I think come out of this passage which really help us uh, to understand what it looks like to join Jesus on mission um, as we go into this world to proclaim his kingdom and to make him known. And I think it's really important for us as Christians to know these truths really grasp them and hold on to them, because they are things that help us have the right perspective on mission. They're they're things that help us to persevere in mission, even whenever it's really hard, when it it feels like things are are fruitless our endeavors aren't really having any kind of impact at all. Jesus says in verse 3 something that's really striking, doesn't he? He's sending these followers out as lambs in the midst of wolves, And what's so striking about that is Jesus is the good shepherd who loves the sheep. These are the sheep that he will lay down his life for. And as he sends them out on mission, he wants them to know what the mission will really be like. That they will feel at times vulnerable. That it will feel at times like, like a hostile mission. They might even feel at times in danger on this mission. So he wants them to know these truths, to, to have them sink down deep into their hearts so that they know that, that being on this mission uh, with him, they are not in any kind of danger. They are not. They have nothing to fear. They do not need to give up because Jesus Christ is in charge. So truth number one, Here's what Jesus says, that they must know. First of all, they must know that God is in charge in this mission, not not us, not you. We must know that God is in charge in this mission, not you. And that's great news, isn't it? We can all breathe a a massive sigh of relief. Because if I'm on charge in this mission, then it will feel overwhelming. A global mission. If I'm on charge in in this mission, then it probably will feel like the mission is failing. But we don't need to be overburdened. We don't need to be in despair because God is in charge, not us. Look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this mission, it didn't come about because the disciples got together and you know, they had a bit of a, a conference uh, about it uh, and a chat and, and they decided it would be a good idea to go out on mission to, to make Jesus Christ known. No, they, Jesus, he called them to himself, these 72, he appointed them, he chose them, and he sent them out. It's the same for us this morning. And what we learn in verse 2 is that the Lord that that they talk about who has sent them out here is the Lord of the harvest. And what's more, he's certain about the success of this mission as well. He says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. See, the problem is not the harvest. The problem is the lack of workers in the harvest field. There's such a a bumper crop that it needs more people to go out to bring it in. And we need to be clear on that, I think. We need to remember that because at times I think we can have quite a pessimistic view on mission. Especially in places like Northern Ireland here. Where it feels like less and less people are interested in hearing about Jesus Christ. Or less and less people are becoming followers of Jesus, this mission Jesus calls us on, it sometimes can feel a bit like mission impossible. But Jesus is in no doubt. The Lord of the harvest says there is going to be a bumper harvest. A couple of chapters earlier, he's told his disciples the parable of the sower. And he likens his own ministry and the ministry of his followers to a farmer sowing seed. Scattering seed everywhere. And lots of that seed is wasted. It doesn't bear fruit. And that can be discouraging. That can leave us feeling like we might just pack it all in because it doesn't seem to be having any effect at all. But Jesus says, be in no doubt, because some of that seed that is sown will land on good soil and it will produce a bumper harvest. A hundred times that which was sown. Jesus says, it is going to work, because I am in charge. See, if the harvest depends on me or you, it will be mission impossible. But when it depends on Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, we have reason to be hopeful, don't we? Because he promises that even though many will reject this message, in the end, the harvest will be plentiful. I'm sure that seemed very unlikely to the disciples there, as they turned from looking at Jesus to look at these villages and towns ahead of them. But even think of how things have progressed in Luke's gospel up until now. At first, it was just Jesus on mission, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he called 12 others to join him on mission. And now it's 72, which in the grand scheme of things is still a tiny number. But this is what started a global mission a global mission that has been overwhelmingly successful. Let's not forget that. Throughout the years, millions upon millions of people have come to faith and continue to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just think of some of what's happened in the last century across the world. In 1970, in East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, it was estimated that 1.2% of the population were professing Christians. Those are places with no Christian cultural heritage but in those places there has been amazing growth in God's kingdom. They reckon that in the year 2023 there is now 10.5% of East Asia who are Christian, 171.1 million people. More Christians in China than in the whole of Christian Europe. Who'd have thought that back in 1970? In 1910, 9% of people across the whole of Africa were thought to be Christian. Now, in 2023, that's estimated to be 49%. And we might ask, well, well, how has that happened? It's happened because of stories like this. A guy, Frank Houghton, was born in, in 1894, and he became a missionary in the China Inland Mission in the 1920s. And in 1930, he wrote what is arguably the most famous missionary hymn of all, a song called Facing a Task Unfinished. And he wrote that hymn with a request and a prayer attached. He wrote the song praying and requesting 200 missionaries be sent to China. And China in the 1930s, it was a, a horrific place to be. Mao Zedong was going full force, communism was on the rise, the Christian church was on its knees, 200 missionaries heard the song, felt the Lord's call, and went to China. And it's arguably the most incredible moment of church growth in history. In 1958, the wife of Mao Zedong announced, this is what she said, Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. But like we said, if you fast forward to today, 50 years later, it's estimated that there are up to 100 million Christians in China. And that's just one story, one example of people across the world who believed what Jesus Christ said here, that the harvest is plentiful, but that the workers are few. And so they did what Jesus Christ calls the 72 to do here, where there is that urgent need. He called them to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. They pleaded with the Lord of the harvest. They trusted the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And do you know what? He answered those prayers. You see, God is in charge on this mission, not us. So we pray to him. We ask him to do what is needed to do what's necessary. We ask him to do what only he can do. And prayer is the proof that we really believe that God is in charge in this mission, not us. Prayer is the proof that that we really believe the results of this mission, the results of our missional endeavors, they lie solely with him. Only he can open people's blind eyes to the truth and wonder of the gospel. Only he can bring people from death to eternal life. Only he can stir in the hearts of his people to send them out to make him known. And so the question for us this morning is, are we praying? Are we praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field here in East Belfast? On these streets. In this community. Are we praying to the Lord of the harvest for the harvest field in Southern Ireland for him to send out laborers into a place where the harvest really is plentiful, but the laborers are very, very few. Do you pray for the harvest field of your workplace, of your neighborhood, of your friendship group, that God would send you and equip you to go for him as a laborer there, Prayer is our starting place on mission. Prayer is foundational to the mission. And so we go praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field, knowing that he is in charge, not us. That's truth number one. Truth number two is this. Know that the message you proclaim about Jesus brings peace. The message you proclaim about the kingdom of God brings peace. Look at the first thing Jesus tells these disciples to say as they go. Verse 5 Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. Now, what does that mean? What is this peace that they proclaim? Well, to understand the message of peace, we have to back up in our Bibles quite a bit. Because in the beginning, God created a world that was at peace. All things in this world were in perfect harmony. And the only reason that changed was because we as humanity chose war. We chose war with God, which then leads to war with each other. You see, if we loved God and we lived in his world in his way, then his way would always lead to peace. We would be at peace with him. We would be at peace with each other. But we don't love God and we don't want to live in his way. We want to live in our way. We say no to him and yes to self. And that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because if I want to do things my way and you want to do things your way, well, what happens when we meet? We fight about it. And that's why the world is not a peaceful place. That's why we're often not at peace with each other, even at peace within ourselves, because ultimately we are not at peace with God. And peace in in the Bible, it isn't just the end of war, it's the restoring of all things to the way they were meant to be, to the way God created them to be. And you know, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God promised he would send someone to restore that peace, to bring peace between us and God and peace between us and each other. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they paint a beautiful picture of what that peace will look like. They say, There will come a day when there will be no more fighting, no famine, no more funerals or farewells. There will be nothing to fear. People from all nations will live in harmony and at peace, and they will feast together at God's table with an abundance of good things that never end, because God's chosen one will come, and he will restore the world to how it was supposed to be. He will bring peace. And there will be peace. Because we will be at peace with God. We will no longer be his warring enemies. We will be his beloved children. And we will know just how wonderful it is to experience peace with God. And we will desire to live more and more at peace with each other. But the lingering question that, that continues throughout the Old Testament is how will this beautiful picture of peace ever become a reality? Well, the world is broken because our relationship with God is broken. And so if the world is ever going to be made right, what needs to be made right is our relationship with God. And what does it take to fix broken relationships? Forgiveness. Forgiveness says... What you have done is wrong, but I will not make you pay for it. I will put your wrongdoing behind you so that we can walk into a more peace filled and and beautiful future together. And Jesus Christ, He is the one who has come to bring that peace. He restores us to God because He brings forgiveness. For a moment, Just turn back with me to Luke chapter 7, if you have your Bible. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, 48 to 50, because this story will help us understand that connection between forgiveness and peace, okay? We've looked at this story before. It's the one of the woman, the sinful woman, who comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints him with perfume. Look what Jesus says to her after she does this beautiful thing to him. Verse 48, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They know that the only God can forgive sins. Who's this then that says that her sins are forgiven? And Jesus says to them in verse 50, or he says to the woman, sorry, in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See the connection? This woman, woman goes away from her encounter with Jesus at peace restored to God. Why? Because she has been forgiven. Jesus has forgiven her sins. This is why Jesus has come. He has come into our world to offer forgiveness for all the wrong things that we have done. He has come to to restore the relationship which we have broken with God. He doesn't expect us to pay the penalty our sins deserve. He graciously pays it for us as he goes to the cross and dies on our behalf. And in doing that, he brings us peace. And that's the wonderful message of his kingdom. That's what these disciples are are called to go and tell people. Jesus has come to forgive your sins, to bring you peace. And so Jesus says in verse six, if a son of peace or a person of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. What does this mean? Well, Son of peace, it's kind of a Hebrew way of saying a person who receives your offer of peace. If they receive your offer of peace, then your peace will rest on them. They will enjoy that peace with God. Their sins will be forgiven. That broken relationship between them and God will be restored. And the disciples go proclaiming peace. And then when people welcome them in, do you see what they do in verse eight? They heal the sick. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. See, the ministry that Jesus calls his disciples to, this mission that he sends them on, it is one of word and deed. It's a ministry of peace that is about word and deed. They heal the sick to show that the kingdom of God has come near. To show that one day, just as the prophet said, the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. God will restore all things to how they were meant to be. The brokenness will be fixed and the healing here is a sign, a little foretaste of that, pointing to that day which will come. See how the, the world around us so much of the time, they think that, that the message we have to share as Christians will spoil things, ruin things, Divide things, disrupt things. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the message we have about King Jesus it is one that brings peace, healing. Healing the people's lives, healing in communities. I have a, a friend who uh, became a Christian in the last year or so. It's an amazing story of what God has been doing in his life. And since becoming a Christian, life following Jesus, it hasn't always been easy. There have been lots of things along the way that I think have been thrown at him to try and make him wobble and think whether life following Jesus is really worth it. Uh, and I was with him a while ago and, and he reflected on life following Jesus and the hard time that he's been through. And he said this, through all of this, I just have this sense of peace. I don't feel like I used to feel restless, worried all the time. Yes, things are hard, but I have peace. He said this, things have been hard, but I know because of Jesus, things will be okay. I will be okay. And I know that 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 guy wasn't just saying that because that's what he thought Christians say. No, he was saying it because this is his experience of life now with Jesus. He knows that he is loved by God, forgiven by God, right with God. He is at peace with God. And there's nothing better than knowing that. Nothing better in life. There is nothing that we could offer to people that is better than that. Let's never be embarrassed about the message that we have to share. Let's never think that it doesn't apply to the culture that we live in. Nothing could be more applicable in this restless age. This is the peace that the world is after. They just do not know where to find it. But we go proclaiming peace in Jesus Christ. That the kingdom of God has come near. This offer of peace is for you. If only you would accept Jesus as your savior. Truth number two, we go remembering that the message we proclaim about Jesus brings peace. And truth number three, as we go on mission, we must know what's at stake. Know what's at stake. I preached this in South last week, and whenever I said stake, everybody was, there was a few faces around the room that were laughing, I could tell, because it's literally the worst word that a Balamina man could have to say. <laughs> but we must know what's at stake on this mission. We must, because Jesus says to his followers here, there will be people who they meet who will reject their offer of peace. It's really sad. And there's a pretty heavy warning in all this. This middle section is is a tough read. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Wiping the dust off their feet. This is Again, one of those kind of descriptive things rather than prescriptive things. We're not to go out whenever people reject us, you know, wipe kind of the dust off our feet in front of them. No, this is a really specific thing for this mission. And it's a kind of solemn public declaration that's saying what you have done here is serious. It is not a small thing to reject Jesus and his message. It is a really, really serious thing. Your rejection of Jesus and the kingdom of God, it doesn't change the reality. Jesus is the king. He's come into this world to offer peace to all who will accept him. Do you know there's a day coming, though, when he will come to this world again to restore all things to how they were meant to be, to bring that perfect peace that we talked about earlier? And Jesus says in verse 12, when I do, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. He's saying that if you reject the offer of peace today, then in that day, in the day he comes to restore this world, you will not be part of of that perfect and fixed creation. You won't be part of that. It won't be for you. And it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for those who reject King Jesus. Sodom in the Old Testament was a notoriously anti-God kind of place. And Jesus says, it will be more bearable for them than for you who reject me now. And he gives a similar warning in verse 13 to 15 in those woes. Tyre and Sidon, also notoriously anti-God places. He says, if my messengers had come with this message of peace to those places, they would have accepted them. They would have welcomed them in, but you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, places that saw the glory and the greatness of King Jesus, you, you rejected him. And it will be better on that day for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You, Capernaum, a place where Jesus Christ lived for a period of his life. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus Christ live among you? but yet they rejected him. Instead of being exalted to heaven, Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. Why? Well, Jesus says in verse 16, why? The one who hears you hears me, and the one who who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Remember, he's talking to his followers here on this mission, to his messengers, and he says to them, people will reject you. They will reject the message that you bring. But if they reject you and your message, remember that they are rejecting me. And if they reject me, they are rejecting the one who sent me, the God of heaven and earth. And that is a serious thing. And as Jesus followers, we need to hear this. As difficult and as heavy and as hard as this is to hear, we need to know what's at stake. Because if we ignore the reality of judgment, if we pretend that that it's not something that that will ever come to pass, if we kind of block it out in our minds, if we believe that in the end, people who reject Jesus will be fine, really, it it won't be that bad. They can just keep Jesus at arm's length, but you know, one day it'll be all right in the end. No, no if we believe those things, that will stop us from going to them to share the message of peace that Jesus offers. It will stop us going as lambs in the midst of wolves, putting our necks on the line, even when it's hard. But if we believe this to be true, if we know that this is the reality, as hard as it is to hear, then we know why it's so important to go. We know why it's so important to pray, for our unbelieving friends, to pray for people in this community who don't know Jesus, to pray for people across the world who at the moment, without a savior in Jesus, will one day perish. Instead of of peace and restoration for those people, there will be death and destruction. Instead of heaven, there will be hell. And that is why we go. As lambs in the midst of wolves, knowing what's at stake. This is the news upon which eternity turns. Look at verse 17 with me. See how the 72 come back from the mission with joy. They're rejoicing in the things they have done. This mission has been a a success, a great success. The power and the authority that they had over evil, they can hardly believe it. They say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They've seen amazing things happen. They've seen people set free from the grip of evil. And that's what happens when you proclaim the message of peace. And when people accept Jesus, people are set free. Lives are transformed. They've experienced that, seen that. But Jesus, he reminds them of something in verse 18. That the power and the authority belongs to him, not them he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So it's almost like what he's saying to them here is as the kingdom of God advanced, as they went on mission proclaiming the kingdom and as it, as it moved forward, Jesus saw Satan's demise. He saw that his time is nearly up because Jesus has all power and authority over evil. And he knows that the time is coming very soon at the cross and the tomb when Satan will be defeated forever. When all the powers of evil and the spiritual forces of evil will be disarmed, put to shame. And he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What's he saying here? Well, he's reminding all his followers on mission that no matter how hard it is, that even when they go as lambs in the midst of wolves, they are on the winning side. Nothing will stand against the kingdom of God. Nothing will stop his advance. Why? Well, because we are his. We are his, and that's the fourth truth that we need to know as followers of Jesus as we go on mission, know that you are his. This is the amazing truth of verse 20. Nevertheless, Jesus says to them, do not rejoice in this. So so he's, he's saying, I'm glad you're happy. It's not that he's saying don't rejoice in what you've done. Do rejoice in it, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Primarily, first and foremost, set your joy in that you are mine, that you belong to me. Not in the things that you do for me, but that you belong to me. See, the danger is what keeps us going on mission. It is kind of success, as the world terms success. It's a numbers game. It's all about how many people we see converted through our efforts. It's all about how many new people we see coming to our church. It's all about how many good gospel conversations we've had with unbelieving friends in the last week or two. And the danger is we tie our joy on mission to success on mission. Success in ministry. But what happens on the bad days? When things don't go so well or or when we don't see any fruit. When it feels like we're plugging and plugging away and, and nothing really is happening. What happens when we do feel the weakness and the vulnerability of being a lamb in the midst of wolves in our workplace or in our friendship group or among family? when we're rejected, when we're slandered, isolated, excluded, what do we do then? Do we lose our joy? Do we get filled with a sense of despair on mission for Jesus? No, we don't have to, Jesus says, because tying tying your joy to those things will lead to that. But that's why he says, tie your joy to the fact that your name is written in heaven, that you are known by me. Rejoice primarily in that. It's a lovely picture that the Bible uses several times to show us that our place before God is secure. A while back, I went to a restaurant with some friends uh, in Belfast here, and it was very crowded in the kind of entrance way. And I thought whenever we went in, we're never going to get a table here. It's so busy. But my friend had booked a table for us. And so when we walked in, we knew that our names were in the book, and so we didn't have to be worried, worried about what was going to happen, because we knew that that our place was reserved. Because of Jesus, there is a place for you at God's table, reserved for you forever. And that is something to rejoice about this morning, because that means that there is never anything that can separate you from him. Nothing can ever change that. It means that whatever you do for him or don't do for him, he will never stop loving you. It means that whatever anyone else does to you, he will never stop loving you. He will always delight to have you at his table. Your place is booked. And the thing is, when you get that, like really get that, it actually fuels our lives on mission. Because why don't I often tell my friends about Jesus? Why do I stay silent? Because I'm afraid of what they might think of me. I'm afraid of what I might lose. Status, reputation, a place at their table, a welcome in their home. But if I know that my name is written in heaven, that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has reserved a place at his table for me, then I know that there is nothing to lose. If I'm crippled on mission by a fear of failure, of saying the wrong thing or of doing the wrong thing, of messing up for Jesus, if that's you, know that your name is already written in heaven. Jesus loves you not because of what you do, but because of what he has already done. He has displayed his love for you at the cross, dying for you, to forgive you for your sins, to to lead you into a place of peace with God forever, to lead you towards that glorious future with him, at peace forever. Tim Keller, he, he died. Uh, a few weeks ago. He's a kind of famous Christian, if you want to call him that, but um, someone who has done amazing things in the last 70, 80 years for God's kingdom. Uh, And over the last number of weeks, tributes were kind of coming in for Tim Keller and and the life that he'd lived. And one that stood out to me when I watched them was uh, one from John Piper, Uh, He talked about the last email back and forth that him and Tim Keller had. I wonder if there's like an insight into the kind of email back and forth that that these famous theologians and famous preachers have, but they were talking about this verse, verse 20. And and Keller said to John Piper that what gave him joy as he reflected on his life, it, it wasn't the the sermons that he had preached or the books that he had written or the people that he had helped in their journey to Jesus or in following Jesus, what brought him most joy as he reflected on his life there in his deathbed in, in many ways was knowing that because of Jesus, his name was written in heaven. He was secure. If you're a Christian this morning, I pray that if you if you leave this morning and remember nothing else, I pray that you leave remembering that your name is written in heaven. That you're forgiven because of Jesus. That you're at peace with God because of Jesus. That heaven will one day be your future because of Jesus. And when you get that, when you know that, that is joy. Joy that sets you free. Joy that makes you bold to share the hope of Jesus with others who don't yet know him. Let's remember this. Let's rejoice in this. and Let's go and proclaim the kingdom of God to this world out there. Stand with me now if you can and let's pray before we come to the table. Lord, as we come to the table this morning as Christians, as broken people, as people who've messed up and got things wrong, as weary people, I pray that we would come to the table with these words ringing in our ears. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus, we praise you for that. We thank you for that line, that tucked into that line are a thousand reasons to rejoice in you. We pray that you would write that line on our hearts. You would use it to make us bold in sharing you with others. I pray these things for your glory. Amen.